Welcome to the PTSD Podcast with your host, comedian and military veteran, Bernard the Lab Therapist Hines, where we discuss PTSD, processing traumatic situations differently, and give you tools to help you overcome the stigma of seeking help. If you're ready to be inspired, then welcome to the Stigma-Free Zone. Here's your host, the lap therapist himself, Bernard Hines. What up, what up, good people? How are y'all doing? This is your boy, Bernard Hines, a.k.a. the Laugh Therapist, and thank you for tuning in to the PTSD Processing Traumatic Situations Differently podcast. Here, y'all, we try to enlighten, inform, and give people resources of what they can do to help better their life. And always remember, y'all, as a therapist, I am not licensed. I'm only medicated. Hi. Welcome to the Stigma-Free Zone. Listen, y'all, thank y'all for tuning in. We're going to have a great Great talk on today, y'all. I have Chaplain Sai Ali with me today, y'all. We He's a gentleman out of California, and I'm going to bring him to the stage and bring him on right now, y'all. Welcome, Chaplain Sai Ali. How you doing, sir? I'm good, Bernard. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate you. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, y'all. This 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 brother found me through his PR people. Yo, he got PR people. He I got, P, he got <laughs> PR people. I said, listen... PR people, listen, y'all. He's a um, former or retired Air Force person, y'all. Air Force, you know, I don't do too much with the Air Force because I wasn't smart. <laughs> I wasn't smart enough to go in the Air Force. So I'm gonna tell you that right now. I wasn't smart enough. They asked me if I wanted to go to college. They asked me if I wanted to take the SAT. I said I'm not going to school on no Saturday. So I knew I wasn't smart enough to go in there. <laughs> I'm telling you, I knew I wasn't smart enough to go in the Air Force. But listen, sir, thank you for being here with us. Just thank tell you. us a little small, a, a small bio about who you are wow bernard i've lived an incredible life at the end of the day when i look back at everything i was able to accomplish uh i spent 11 years in the air force i actually had two separate stints i went in right out of high school in 79 and got out in 86 and went back in in uh 1999 and then Mm -hmm. got out in 2003 so I was in the Air National Guard in Washington, D.C. when 9-11 happened. So uh, yesterday, I always feel a certain way on 9-11. Yes. Um, but I did 11 years. Okay. And, and I got out uh, to become a professional wrestler. Oh. So I wrestled professionally for like 16 years. Um, I served as a criminal investigator in D.C. Superior and federal courts for seven years. Okay. I was a protection agent for Vice President Gore. Uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, wow. uh, royal family throughout Middle East, uh, university lecturer, and then I became a minister, went through okay. seminary training, got my chaplaincy certification, and worked for three years at a cancer treatment facility up in Seattle, up in the Tacoma area, actually, okay. Washington. Uh, and pres- presently right now, I'm working as a youth coach. Uh, for a dynamic young company out of California by the name of Alevo. We provide social emotional learning through physical education for over 70 school districts in California. So I'm blessed, brother, with everything, with the PTSD, everything else that happened. I'm still blessed to be here. Yes, you you. are. Yes, Yes. you are. Listen, y'all, I told y'all, I know people. I know important people. This man has been all around the world and been with some important people. Now I'm going to put in my bio, I talked to somebody who was with Miguel Gorbachev. And you don't know who he is, Google Miguel Gorbachev. 
A lot of young people don't know who he is. Don't, a lot of people don't know. I know who he is because I was <laughs> yeah. in the army. We had all Absolutely. because of him. We had to do a whole lot of stuff. So, sir, yes. where did you grow up? I grew up in a small steel town north of Pittsburgh, PA, called Farrell, Pennsylvania. Farrell, Pennsylvania. Okay, yeah, just across the border from Youngstown, Ohio. Wow, that's good. That's good. So you're still a fan, right? Oh, you. <laughs> Listen, yes, I am. Okay, we're gonna enough. go there. Okay, we gonna, you gotta say pretty, it. Yeah, it wasn't we pretty. Got, yeah, I'm, so, I'm a Steeler fan for life. So, I, I want to let folks know right off the bat, we're gonna be talking about some things that might be triggering. And if you figure feel you a trigger, we ask you just to take a break and go and uh get yourself together. And because we're not here to try to trigger anybody, but we will be talking about things that possibly could trigger folks. Um, I want to know, first of all, how did you get into professional wrestling? I know you had probably had a lot of anger from the Air Force. Yeah. You ain't do nothing. So you want to go in and fight somebody, right? I was always <laughs> a big fan of it. You okay. know, back in Pittsburgh, we had, it was called Studio Wrestling. It was on every Saturday evening. And I was a big fan of Bruno San Martino and superstar mm. Billy Graham. Yes. And all, these, all these cats that were wrestling back in the 70s. Rufus and, Jones, Rufus our Freight Train Jones. Yeah, yes. Train. You know, I know all that. of them. That's right. Absolutely. Um, and I was still in the military. This okay. was in 86. And I was on the power, I was a power lifter. So I was throwing around a lot of weight. And I was at the old Stapleton Airport in Denver. Mm. And um, I went to a hotel bar, or not, I'm sorry, the airport bar. And I met uh, Jimmy Snooker, Tony Atlas. Jimmy Flash Snooker. Uh, Ricky Steamboat, a couple other guys. We were okay. just having some drinks, and I had some size on me. And they were like, "Did you ever think about being a pro wrestler?" And I'm like, "Right." I, I was always a fan of it, but no, I didn't have really aspirations. But they they hooked me up with a training facility in New okay. Haven, Connecticut. And when I got out in '86, I ended up going up there to train to become a professional wrestler. But I didn't have a whole lot of money, so I had to leave that program, and then I went back to Pittsburgh. And I actually got my start out of Pittsburgh and things wow. started snowballing. And the next thing you knew, I mean, 2002, I had to, I had to leave because I had too many concussions. Okay. I had a lot of concussions, Bernard. Wow. The doctor was like, look, you can continue to do this and have fun. But he was like, I've treated football players. They got a helmet. He was right. like, your skull is unprotected and you're doing all these crazy maneuvers in the ring. So begrudgingly, I had to retire from professional wrestling. Wow. Well, I'm on I'm on a radio show every morning from uh called the Jamal Bates Morning Show, and he is an avid wrestling fan. Oh my goodness. And I, you know, I'd be telling him that it's fake, but since you got concussions, I'm gonna leave that alone. Well, you know, <laughs> there's always there's storylines to correct it. the outcome we know before we even get into the ring. A lot of what we do, at least back in my day, we talked in the ring. Right. If he, if he had me in the headlock or something, he would shout, you know talk a couple of moves. Ooh. He'd go off the ropes. I'd t you know take a bump or whatever. So we talked a lot in right. the ring. Well, you just uh, gave we him knew how long we were going to go, and we right. knew who was going over, who actually was going to win. Well, you just gave him PTSD right then because he, <laughs> he he ain't gonna make. So so let's talk about. Uh, so you do battle or have battled with PTSD? Correct. I have battled. Okay. Yes. Tell us a little and bit about that. Oh, Bernard, you know, it wasn't until 2020 when I stopped drinking that I okay. realized how bad I had it mm. and how long of a time period I actually had it. Okay. I was walking and operating through life and I, I discovered several trigger points, not just one. Okay. Um, because I didn't serve 
over in a war zone, mm-hmm. but I experienced 9-11 and I was stationed in the D.C. area. They actually oh. looked after me. But uh, there were things going on. Probably I looked at the co- amount of concussions that I had. And I had 12. Wow. 12, brother. And the last one, I mean, my guy did a pile driver on me on top of a baseball dugout. We were touring upstate New York. And I told him to do it. He didn't want to do it. I was like, man, we got this crowd popping, bro. Let's go. Right. He's like, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. I really forced the hand. And he gave me a pile driver. And Bernard, there was maybe a little bit of my scalp that was exposed. And the dugout was concrete. But so he was going to do a soft one. But still, there was enough of my head that hit that concrete. And I blacked. But I continued to wrestle. We went wow. on for another 15 minutes before we got back to the locker room That's and deep. I couldn't remember anything. That's deep. And the promoter wanted to call. I was married at the time. I was like, don't you dare call her. Uh, he ended up doing it and I finished that tour. But when I went back to uh, Alexandria, Virginia, mm-hmm. uh, the doctor read me to ride at and, and I had to, I had to stop. So I looked at that. Okay. I looked at my dad and my father-in-law passing within four years of each other. Okay. I was devastated because my dad was absolutely my best friend. Right. Okay. And when I was married, my father-in-law was a Presbyterian minister. So my dad passed in 05. My father-in-law passed in 09. And I think I was just lost. I had right. two, my two, you know, men that were so instrumental in my life were gone within a handful of years and grief is real grief is. People, grief is no one can tell you how long to grieve no no and as a chaplain i tell people that i'm like there is no sort of prescription of say how long you can grieve correct but i i could not come to grips with i mean i struggled when my dad passed correct. but my father-in-law for him he he was such an inspiration Mm-hmm. Uh, that it was almost like that was my other father it, th- to say an in-law just was really not even indicative of how okay. special he was in my life. And when he passed, I think I checked out. I really I did. I and I continued to work. Okay. Uh, in 2014, I, I went to work in the cannabis industry. I became the mm. first security executive uh, to enter the cannabis space on a full-time basis. Okay. And I got out to Denver I went through a separation, went through a divorce, and that's when I plummeted. Oh, wow. But I continued to work, Bernard. Of course, I mean, we continue to function. There you absolutely. go. Absolutely. But when I would get home at night, I did not know who was looking back at me. Wow. And I'm very analytical because of being in the security field and being okay. an advanced agent and having to travel and go to all these different outposts. I planned my suicide. I'm like, I'm going to do it on a Saturday afternoon. Mm -hmm. That Glock 19 that I used for so many years to protect myself and others, I turned that against me. Wow. And what happened in that room was miraculous because I should not be here. Correct. I had that Glock in my mouth. I put around in the chamber and, and believe it or not, as a former law enforcement and protection agent, I hate it to put around in a chamber. Okay. And, you know, most cops would be like, oh man, you got to have a round in a chamber, chamber, blah, blah, correct. blah. But okay. I didn't. And so when I, when I put that round in the chamber, I'm pretty sure I got God's attention because he wow. was like, okay, this, he's going to do this. And I, I had a big old bottle. I had a gray goose bottle on my mm-hmm. desk. I never even opened nothing. Even though I worked in the cannabis company, no drugs, nothing. I said, I'm not going to be self-medicated. 
I am going to do this. Wow. And I had it. I had the trigger. I had my finger on it. Mm -hmm. And when I thought I pressed the trigger, everything in that room went completely dark. There was no movement. I had a, a 75 cameras, you know, to cover my facility. I was in my office mm. and everything went dark. And I was like, oh, OK, maybe I maybe. did. Maybe right. this is transitional. And then I felt the presence of two individuals in this space with me. And it was almost like I can the aroma of the scent was very, very familiar. And I'm I, God dispatched my dads to come down and talk sense into me wow. because I felt when I was in my chair, I felt somebody was like crouching in, in, in like a kneel position, almost okay. like a coach. And then somebody was behind my right shoulder with their hand on my shoulder. And I recognized the grip as my father-in-law mm -hmm. and they, you know, they were like, my dad was mad, but I can only hear like faint voices. And my dad was a cursor, man. He would, well, I, when I got into the military, there was nothing that my drill instructor can do to me. Right. That, my dad right. would rip me up one side and down the other, but he wasn't cursing. I can hear voices. He was very disappointed. And my father-in-law asked me, he said, son, do you realize what you were going to leave behind in your wake? Wow. And before I can answer, Bernard, it was like an old fashioned projection screen, like my grandparents would have when they go on their trips and we would have to watch home right. movies. Okay. I saw my whole life from birth to death. I actually watched myself shooting myself. I saw the blood splatter. My body was there for a couple of days before folks got the key to get in my office. My office was the most secure office. Okay. I was a director of corporate security. Wow. It took them a while to get my body. And then I saw everything. I saw how my family reacted. I saw how the employees reacted. I watched my kids go in and out of counseling and mm. alcohol abuse. I saw. In the blink of, of an eye. Yes, sir. Wow. And then both, both of them asked, is this really what you want? And I tell you, I had urinated on myself. It, this was the most terrifying experience for me I that it. I had ever been through. And then when I said, this is not what I want, it was like everything came back up. But the kicker about that, Bernard, was like four hours had elapsed. It was dark outside. And this was like April in Denver. And I could not move from my chair. I was so afraid. I was like, what just happened? And it wasn't until 2020 that when I stopped drinking and God just laid everything out for me. Wow. He laid it all out. Listen, he was like, you you are struggling, but he said, I got I got work for you to do. You Correct. Are too foolish. You're too foolish to realize how I That's have true. plans for you. That's true. And listen, y'all, we talking to Chaplain Sai Ali, y'all. And right now we're being raw and we're being open. And as I say again, if you're feeling triggered or there's anything that's coming up and you feel you need to step away, please step away. But we are being real and open because we are trying to help those who are out here thinking there's, there's no other way. So Absolutely. what I want to say, what I want to say to you is when you was in that that moment of thinking to attempt, because I was I, I felt like I had a lot of pain that I wanted to go away. I, I felt like I was a failure. I felt like I was going through a divorce. I felt like I was a failure. I felt like I let my kids down. I did all this in the military. People looking at me crazy. I just wanted the pain of everything to stop. What was your what was your. I felt the same way. Okay. You know, I, what I realized was, is at this company I was at, 
it was I was responsible for everybody's lives. Okay, you know this was 2014. Colorado had just did their proposition, so cannabis was officially legal for recreational use. The spotlight was on the industry. The spotlight was on me as the first corporate security director. So I felt like I had to be at my best to keep everybody safe. But then when I would go home, man, I would so struggle. Mm-hmm. I was drinking really mm-hmm. hard. Numbing, I mean, numbing yourself. I was knocking down vodka yeah. tonic, bro. Knocking mm. them down. I did a little bit of cannabis. I mean, I never did anything hard or anything harsh, um, but I was medicating myself. Correct. And then, so fast forward to March 1st, 2020, I got a DUI. I was up in the Pacific Northwest wow. and I got pulled over. I got arrested. And I was in this orange suit. I got bailed out within like a couple of hours. But I told my friends that night, March 1st, 2020, I'm never drinking again. Now, those who know me know I was a partier. Okay. I loved, I loved getting people together, love fellowship. So I'm sure there were skeptics that said, okay, this is only going to be oh, wow. just yeah. a period of time. for Correct. Correct. But I have, haven't drank since. Wow. I picked up my mom's Bible, which I had rarely read the Bible in my life. Okay. And I believed that God was like, oh, okay. I'm seeing something now. Turning and on. I don't even believe God anticipated me taking seminary classes or getting okay. my chaplaincy certification. I think that was all a little extracurricular. Uh, but then I wrote an article entitled Out of the Storm. Now I shared it. Yes. Is that your documentary? Uh, the documentary is Project Resurrection. Okay, we're going to talk about that. I thought this was... Yes. Okay. But I wrote this article, and I and I chronicled, you know, my life as a wrestler, security. Okay. And then battling these dark demons. And I shared it on social media, and the, the feedback that I got, a lot of people were surprised. My pastor, and I interviewed her on my podcast, Pastor Carmen Cox Harwell, she was like, you know what? She was like, I didn't see this coming. She was like, you were like James Bond to me. Mm. You had been with all these people, you right? Were doing all these things. She was like, I never would have guessed that you were struggling to where you attempted to take your own life. Mm-hmm. So it was surprising to people. But when I wrote that article, Bernard, people it resonated with people. Yes, people it does. Told me I that it was it. like I was writing their story. Wow. It, I was writing somebody else's story, but it was mine. And even like when I wrote it, uh, a young kid who went to school with my son. Okay. And I, I was coaching like fifth and sixth grade basketball. He read the article and he came out to his parents. And this was a wealthy, high net worth family. Okay. And he told his parents that he was bi. Okay. And his parents reacted horribly to him. And so he was in his little apartment and getting ready to take his life. And his folks called me and they said, he read your article. Would you talk to him? Now, I was in my office doing chaplaincy rounds. I was up in the chemo room sitting down with cancer patients. So I ran back to my office and I got on the phone with him and I was like, I want you to FaceTime me. Mm -hmm. And so he hung up and he called me back. And I I thought for sure, Bernard, this kid was going to take his life in front of me. But somehow God was able to resonate with me to him. And I had him put the gun down. And then when I got to his parents, I read them the riot act. I was like, why would you respond like that? 
Mm-hmm. And it was little things like this where people would call me to counsel them. So I understand what God, why he kept me. Uh, yes. I was a big fan of Anthony Bourdain. Oh, on, yes. Like, no reservations and that. Right. It felt like he and I were kindred spirits, although I'm not a chef and not even a good cook. Okay. But I, I had a zest for travel, had a zest for sitting down and talking to people. And I love drinking. And then <laughs> when he took his life, I asked God, I was like, God, why him? Right. Okay. Why not me? Mm. And God was like, look, I got work. I work in ways which you will never understand. Come on now. But I took him. You are here. You do w- do what you do for others. Be Correct. impactful in everyone's life while you're here. And then when it's time for you to officially go, I will take you. I will bring you home. Amen. And I said, okay. Oh, so, wow. Yeah, I, this is this is the story and it's how it started. Listen, y'all, we are talking to Chaplain Sai Ali, security executive on ordained minister and chaplain. But listen, as a comedian, my mind is always going, I want to know, because I know people out there saying, okay, he got a DUI in 2020. When did he become a chaplain? What was, now talk about your ministry calling. I actually was ordained in 2018. Okay. I didn't take my ordainment seriously. Come on now. Come on I really now. didn't. I didn't think that I had a purpose. There were folks that wanted me to officiate their weddings. Okay. So I did that. But then when I really, Come on. really, Bernard, picked up the Bible and I was like, you know what? I I never put it down. And mm-hmm. I was taking courses through the quarantine. I was, I was taking classes. I was doing 14, 15 hour days because mm. that's all I had to do. You right. couldn't go out. There was nothing You're to right. do. do and it was online. Right. But I really got into it and it was unfortunate that i couldn't like t- tag team up with another chaplain because nobody was going on site to do right. anything anything so i had a friend up there in the pacific northwest who was an oncologist and she was like we don't have a chaplain why don't you come so i was learning on the fly i learned you I mean i went through first and i was carrying my bible and people would run from you Right. So I stopped okay. carrying the Bible when okay. I was doing my rounds and I would just sit and talk to people. And the one thing that uh, the chaplaincy training taught me was to be a good listener. Yes. Come on now. Good. Be Just listen, because sometimes Correct. people just want to talk. So mm-hmm. I don't even have to. I have a couple of cancer patients that just weren't necessarily looking for spirituality or trying to get closer to God. They just wanted to talk and wanted somebody to listen. So my biggest takeaway from my chaplaincy training was to actually just listen to people. Correct. And when it was time for me to add a little bit, you know, add to it, I would. And and I think they appreciated that. And then they would start talking more. I mean, because I'm all I I got cancer patients from uh, from from palliative. So they were Mm. already deemed to be terminal and had X amount of time to live. To live. Wow. So that's when they would give me those patients okay. to be able to sit and talk with them uh, about their spiritual journey, wh- whether they were close to God or whether they weren't, whether they wanted to be a little bit closer while mm-hmm. they were going through their journey on this. And it, it just sparked because it helped me to minister to others. Cause Correct. I just recently lost my last cancer patient in June. She was the last one I had. I had 20 up in the 20s, like close to 25. You know, some people were really into it and some people just wanted to wanted me to pray with them. 
Uh, but I had this last cancer patient who started when I picked her up in 21, I think September of 2021, somebody had told her that God, if he didn't like you, he would give you cancer. Wow. And I was like, whoa. Wow. I, I'm out. Right. Out. I lost a lot of wow. people with cancer who were ministers, who mm -hmm. were godly and walked righteous. That's right. So I said, whoever told you that, shame on them. Yes. So her and I became, we became intertwined. I mean, I was doing everything remotely. I was okay. doing wow. yeah. Yeah. Zoom, whatever, just as long as I could see her. Okay. And she, she really, her journey was just breathtaking the way she got closer. Wow. And all it, when helps. she, I could tell when she was really starting to phase out because she couldn't talk to me. Okay. And she was like, I just, I'm going to listen to your voice. She was like, your voice is soothing, soothing to me. Yeah. And then uh, the last time I had seen her, her daughter and her husband were there and they said, she can hear you. So just talk to her. Mm. And I talked and they said her eyes lit up and then she passed away that night. And I had seen a lot of people go Bernard, but that when she left here, it hurt. Okay. It truly hurt. Okay. Um, it's all good. It's all good. That's what we, this stigma free zone, brother. Yeah. Um, because I learned through her mm -hmm. and I thought I had cancer. I thought I had prostate okay. uh, and, it, and it turned out I didn't. And I found her ministering to me. She was like, if you get this, you go, you're good. I mean, she was actually ministering. Right. So wow. the work, it wasn't necessary. I didn't look at it as my work. I looked at it as God's work through me to her and a fantastic Amen. relationship. I, you know, her husband listened to my podcast. Okay. Uh, her daughter, I have ministering her because she had issues and I still communicate with the family, but I needed a little bit of a break. Okay. And I, I talked yeah. to other chaplains who worked Say that again. Yes, in, yes. In hospitals, and they were like, "Look, you you got to be able to unload on mm -hmm. somebody mm -hmm. because it begins to be a lot." That's Even right. For a minister or a chaplain, when you're in those situations and you're you saying have to. goodbye to people, left you have to life. right. You have uh, to. So I took. I'm on hiatus now, but okay. I work in school districts here in Monterey County uh, with a bunch of kids, and I love working with kids, Bernard. Okay. So I think God is like, okay, you're going to be in this space, but you you can't necessarily minister in schools. We know yeah. church and state. Yeah, yeah, that's what they say. Mentor, and a minister back in Pittsburgh who did a high school program told me, here's the way you do this: you can mentor. You don't have to read scriptures to kids in school, correct? But you can get close. You can tell them what's right and what's wrong. You can let them know your personal story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got to be careful with that with younger kids. But when I uh, was a youth coach in Pittsburgh, PA at Penn okay. Hill High School, I, the, I got very close to the kids because mm -hmm. I actually was transparent and said, hey, the story that I told you, my situation, I told them. And then that opened up. The hoods came off the hit. Yeah. The, ear, the hoodies, yeah. Came out yeah. Of the ear, yeah. And they were actually listening. And then they shared their stories with me. Because you and gave them a little, you gave them a little bit of you, you know. When yeah, you, when I felt people like I can needed to, right? Our, you, because you people, know, it, it was a Saturday morning, man. I made a joke about the Breakfast Club, the movie. Remember the Breakfast Club? Yeah, I heard. <laughs> yep, I remember and that. None of the kids got that reference, but we were there on a Saturday morning. I went to Dunkin' Donuts and bought a, you know, a big thing of donuts, 
and they, they there had been several shootings involving students. So they lost a lot of kids. Wow. In a short period of time. So they had shut down and it and took a while. Shut down. Me. But once I got to them, man, the floodgates opened up and a young 15 year old female who was a, a freshman rolled up her sleeve and showed me her arm and all the slice marks on her arm. Mm. And I said, OK, this is real. Right. And, and then I shared my article with them. And then I had them write articles okay. about their lives. And, and it was a beautiful thing. It really was. You'd it be amazed. Up, it opened up doors. So when I came out here, uh, I came out, I got recruited because from a small security firm, but things didn't work out there. Okay. And as opposed to me going back to Pittsburgh or going to Pacific Northwest, I stayed here, Bernard. I went to a veterans homeless shelter in Marina, California. I was homeless for like nine, 10 months. Wow. And I got there and I was like, because I felt like God said, you know what? Be still. Mm. Don't get on a plane. Don't go. Because I felt I'm, I'm nomadic. I've been living all over and I'm Arabic. And my grandmother said, when I was young, I ran away on a Greyhound and came back and got the bejesus beat out of me. My grandmother said, okay, there's the Bedouin of the family. Size oh. the Bedouin. Okay. So I've been moving around, but it was like God told me to be still. Wow. And I stayed at, it's called uh, the Veterans Transition Center. Okay, And I met all these fellow veterans, Bernard, who came from uh, West Point. I met a West Point graduate, a helo pilot, who was living in a van in Salinas. He looked like Charles Manson. He was my roommate, man. I was wow. pleading with this guy to go get a shower. And then we finally got him to get cleaned up and come to find out he, he was knowledgeable of the Bible. He and I had these deep conversations uh, there was another veteran who was a ranger, uh, five tours to Iraq and Afghanistan, tried to take his life with the weapon malfunction. I, and, and I, because I thought God was punishing me. Right. But he Come was setting you, know, he was setting was you like, up. That, yes. Like, Are you a chaplain? Yes. Be a chaplain to these veterans. And wow. they gave me an office and I was mentoring some of the veterans, praying with them. So here I thought God was punishing me because I was homeless. Hold up, he hold actually up, hold showed up. me things, Bernard, that I never thought imaginable. Hold up. So you found your main purpose when you was homeless. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Bernard, I had no job. I had no job, no car, no money. So I was on state assistance for a couple of months. Okay. And I had to go work. There's a little community here named Delray Oaks. It's in between like uh, Seaside and Monterey. Okay. And so I had to go work at a public works department and it was a big park and we would clean up the park. We'd wash the bathrooms up. But Humble. the gentleman who was the director said, man, he was like, first of all, you're yoked. How old are you? And I told uh -huh. him how old I was. And he gave me when, cause people, this is the way, if you got state assistance out here, you had to work X amount of hours a month. Okay. But okay. So he put me in touch with a bunch of folks that I was able to mentor. And he was like, man, he was like, you're working wonders out here. Mm. So it was these little things. But and then I found Alevo. I found them and I became a youth coach in September of last year. Tomorrow's my one year anniversary. OK. And I was a youth coach uh, at a at elementary school in Salinas. And I had they assigned me. TK, which is transitional kindergarten, mm. kindergarten and first grade. 
And I felt like kindergarten cop in this classroom, Bernard, my first day. <laughs> the kids asked me, they said, Coach Cy, how old are you? I said, take a guess. The first kid said 100. I'm like, I'm out of here, man. Kids are on his end. 100. And one little girl, she said 32. So she was my favorite. Right. Oh, they wow. asked me, they looked at my arms. Coach Cy, they said, they said, uh, do you eat earthworms? I said, what? I said, earthworms. They said, yeah, you got them in your arms. How did you get those earthworms in your arms? I mean, I, bro, I fell in love with these kids. Right. I fell in love honest. with them and became like one of the more popular coaches at 60 some years old. And then I got promoted to a manager. So now I go to schools and deal directly with principals and okay. they analyze our program because we put these youth coaches in. Okay. We do uh, like lunch recess. We take three hours. We do morning classes and we do after school programs. So I'm basically the troubleshooter. So I got like 40 plus. I got 40 schools wow. that I deal with. I love my job, man. I get yes, to work you with young like people. It. I get to mentor folks. Uh, it's God has been good. And I think sometimes I, I don't. I think that. I'm doubting my okay. whether God's really working for me. And I, I think God finds that interesting because okay. he was like, just look at what has gone, what's transpired in your life. Mm -hmm. I've sent you all over the world. You're you got a frame of mind that's you know, like that stretches the whole globe. You traveled right. everywhere. You got to do all these different things. I mean, I was in a couple of movies back in Pittsburgh back in the day. So I've I've really lived a fantastic if God took me tomorrow, Bernard. I would be okay. Okay. Well, we're I not really asking. Well, we're not asking him to do that because I got. No, I, got no, no. I know no. we got more I'm work for really you to do. I understand. Life. We under, We truly understand yeah. what you're saying. You you have no regrets. I mean, you have no. done. You have done the work. You have you you came from, as you said, nothing to something. It, it is it is powerful. But listen, talk about your documentary. So when I wrote the article, uh, there were there was a young man. His name is Danny Hickton. Okay. He worked in the cannabis industry with me. His father was a, a U.S. Attorney General back in Pennsylvania. Okay. I said when he when I first met him, it, it, uh, I worked at Dixie Brands in Colorado, and he came there. He was like uh, like an intern. I was like, "You're in the weed business, and your dad is." I said, "Does your dad know?" I said, "What are you doing?" So, but he was really bright. Uh, so I mentored him. He went back to Pittsburgh and got his JD degree at University of Pittsburgh. Okay. And he was the one who said, Sai, your life is worthy of a documentary. Mm. So in September of 2021, I left Pacific Northwest and went back to Pittsburgh and we started filming. And, but it's, you know, we, we just didn't have the money. Okay. To really, I mean, we're about a quarter of the way done. So I just started doing the podcast. I'm hoping at some point to get sponsorship mm -hmm. to help funnel some funds in so I can pay my crew to come out. Correct. You know, so I, and then I was worried that it wouldn't get done. But I've heard other filmmakers say a documentary can be five, six, seven, eight, nine years in the okay. works. But so don't give up on it. Uh, keep adding to the story. Keep adding to it. And there's more layers because yes. when I wrote Out of the Storm, you know, uh, one of my pastor's uh, mentors was like, your story's not over. Mm -hmm. Don't just end it and say, okay, I'm, I'm okay. I'm there because there was more. She was right. That I was homeless. Okay. That I was working with these young people. So it's a continuation and I'm, it'll get done. 
Okay, I, I believe it. Because you, you seem like a person that's your tenacity is, you know, but you're not going to rush it, but you're going to make sure that it gets done and it's going to get done right. I tried to rush it, but now I've learned, you know, again, God said, be still. Right. You know, and just wait, let the process, trust my process. Stop doubting. And I've stopped doubting. Correct. I'm officially, I don't doubt anymore. <laughs> oh, wow. That's good. Listen, y'all, we talking to Chaplain Sai Ali, security executive, ordained minister, and chaplain, uh, ex-professional wrestler, homeless, suicide attempt survivor. Listen, y'all, this man has a wealth of knowledge. Who are you trying to reach? At first, I was just trying to reach veterans. Okay. But now I understand the different faces of PTSD and depression. Yes. I, I really wanted to interview that young 15-year-old from Pittsburgh, but mm -hmm. I wasn't able to, to get her. I wanted her to tell her story because when I left, one of the a youth mentors said she got up in front of her class and read her story. Mm. So you're talking a 15-year-old. I interviewed uh, our church elder. She's 75 years old. When she heard me talk, her triggers set off and she realized how she was battling. I want to show the different faces. I want to show my fellow brothers and sisters who served. Mm -hmm. I want to show young people. Mm -hmm. who battle and i want to show i want to show everybody because their ptsd and depression knows no bounds come on now knows no socioeconomical limit come they, on they now. don't know any of that life don't care about ptsd no, and ptsd no, don't care about life they're going to happen not at all so i want this to be if my story resonates with others or it has them say hmm, this guy had it going on he mm -hmm. battled you know he got through it by the grace of God, I mean, yes, it could have gone the other way. God Correct. could have sat back and just let me blow my head off, but mm -hmm. he didn't. So I feel like he gave me a chance to reach out to others. Wow. Because, you know, Bernard, think about it growing up. When when I would get beatings, I was told, do not shed a tear. At all. So shut up before I give you young, something to cry about. Absolutely. Shut so, up before I give you something to cry about. <laughs> yeah. So when my grandmother died, I mean, and she was my rock. Okay. I didn't. Sh I didn't show emotion in mm -hmm. her funeral. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I just was taught to not really show emotion. It Correct. looks. It, it's. It, you. You're, you're perceived to be soft if you Weak. show emotion. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if that was just prevalent in the black community because I hear a lot of my, you know, white friends say, "Yeah, we we, we felt the same thing." Oh wow. Maybe that was just a generational right, thing. Right. Don't cry. But Me and don't cry. So I didn't show any emotion. It wasn't until a few years ago that I just said, "You know what." If I write this and I talk about it and somebody perceives me to be weak or whatever, that's fine. So be it. There but I'm go. going to tell the story because there's people listening and they might they may not acknowledge me. But if they're listening and they grasp it, I'm doing exactly what God wants me to do. That's right. And that's all that matters. You are yes. doing what God wants you to do. Absolutely. That's it. Listen, talk about Alivo. A level, yeah. A level, okay. Alevo. Talk about a level. And the yes, it used to be called Sports for Learning. Uh, okay. Two Irish gentlemen came to the U.S. I think as young kids, and they went through school, and they said school was boring, so they wanted to add more sports uh, for you know for their emotional stability. Mm -hmm. So they created this company, and now it's called a level. 
So it's only based in California right now, but we are in all the major cities. We're we're up and down uh, the coast of California. Okay. We wear these orange shirts that are is kind of like our trademark. And we go into these school districts offering social emotional learning, okay, physical education. So we have a bunch of different variations of like basketball games, kickball, and we do things that are that get the kids to think. Think right, okay. And I'm realizing now that you know, once we went through the quarantine and pandemic, Ooh. the mental health of I our had, young people it's I, staggering. Bernard, I had, I had two kids. My daughter was she. My daughter did not go to school her 10th, 11th, or t- the end of 10th, 11th, and 12th year. Then she went to college and started going back to classrooms. I mean, she didn't go to high school. So when she went to college, she started going back to the classroom. And it messed her up. Right. <laughs> she was like, I ain't been in the classroom in I don't know how many years. Now I, I got to go. Yeah. So, yeah, so that, that was rough. Kids, when they went back to school, there were all kind of problems. Right. So I believe that this company... It is, is was in the right place at the right okay. time, especially now. And they've been around for a few years, but it's it's really it's relatively a young company. Okay. We just started in like Salinas in like that that school district just a couple of years ago. So mm-hmm. we are still in the process of uh, creating our management team okay. and, and mentoring our youth coaches, the training that they need to go through. Because when these coaches go into a classroom, the thing that I hear is no training prepared me to be in a classroom with these kids. So we try okay. to make sure that they understand behavioral management, mm-hmm. how to handle kids, how to understand okay. that if a kid lashes out, there might be something at home that you don't know. You're no, not privy that's to. Right. That's right. Um, so it's just, it's phenomenal. And I think that this company will ultimately be a national company but i don't want you know they they probably don't want to hear me say that but i believe they are okay because i believe it's needed i believe school districts when they when they see our commercials and videos and things like that i think there is an interest in it but our coaches are very young Mm. so they need to be mentored so i probably was one of our older coaches so when i got promoted to site success manager not only do I deal with the principals, I still go out to the schools and talk with our coaches and, and let them know, you know, the, uh, some folks know about my journey, not the whole company, okay. but a lot of folks know uh, my struggles, my past struggles. So the kids, for some reason, Bernard, maybe it's my soul that's lit up and the kids see this. Mm-hmm. But the kids come to but me. They can, see your, they can see your passion, your, yes. your energy. It exudes. It's, Absolutely. I, I learned that word yesterday, exudes. It's exudes. <laughs> I love it. It's I love how you put it in there, too. <laughs> yeah, I did that. It exudes. And now to yes. you, I mean, your passion for which, I mean, you didn't go through. That's why I tell people, once you have get got to that point where you feel like you want to uh, take your life and then you come back from that, there's nothing else that anybody can say to me when it comes to me being who I am and trying to help others. Yes. I that's that's just who I am and that's who I'm going to be. I love it. I and, love it. And sir, you are the same. Man, I I don't know. I'm just I'm overcome because I love what I do. Right. You know, and I spent 40 plus years in the security industry. And if people ask me, do I miss it? And no, I said I it was great. It was a, a lot of years. I did a lot of things. Mm-hmm. I mean, I worked for like get oil and gas, man. I got sent out to a drilling ship in the middle of Gulf of Mexico and come to find out it was a historical ship. It was the Glomar Explorer that was a drilling ship 
which was what Howard Hughes used. He utilized this ship to go look for that Russian submarine oh, wow. back in the day. And I was I got on this ship because there was a female steward that was raped. And then the employees found out and they were like, if we find out who did this, because this woman was beloved. Okay. She was former Navy. And they said, if we find him, we're just going to toss him over. So they sent me and a team of three other agents out there to kind of maintain the peace. Peace. I mean, these were type of calls that I would get. I mean, I worked, flew all over the world with horses who, you know, traveled to like Australia and Dubai. Wow. Million dollar horses, Bernard, on this big 747 cargo jet. And because they had uh, like caregivers for the horses. Okay. They had to have a security agent on because they didn't have hardened cockpit doors. So wow. I got to sit, even though I'm, I'm a, I'm a frustrated pilot. I never got to be one. Okay. I flown in a 747 all over the world, sitting right behind the captain in the jump seat. Wow. And when I'm sitting there. I'm amazed. They're amazed. They want to hear, okay, who'd you protect? Did you ever shoot anybody? They want to hear more about me. And I'm like, man, is amazing. I love this. It's so amazing I that what you do and what somebody else do, they, you know, know. They, <laughs> but, it's like, ama- no. but it's amazing when you, when you say you uh, do security or I say I've been to war. The first thing some people, well, did you shoot in the body? I, did you shoot? I don't want <laughs> Why do people ask that? I don't oh, know what it- yeah. All I know, I didn't get shot. I got shot at <laughs> though. I tell you that. <laughs> Absolutely. Listen, y'all, we have been talking to Chaplain Sai Ali, this gentleman, this young man, this chaplain, this ordained minister, this security executive, this former wrestler, this former homeless person, this former uh, Air Force has done some great, great things. And, sir, I just want to say thank you for taking the time out to be on on the podcast, the PTSD Processing Traumatic Situations Differently podcast. I, I love it. Thank you. When when I look back, I was like, you know what? The laugh therapist. I was like, the world needs more YouTube, bro. <laughs> appreciate it. I'm gonna try to give it to him, but I appreciate I it, sir. I appreciate it. Listen, thank how, you. How can people follow you and get more information about who you are and what you do? Well, check out my podcast. My podcast okay. is Project Resurrection, the podcast. Okay. I'm on all the different streams. I'm on YouTube. I don't have my website yet, but I'm working on that. Okay. And I looked at yours and I love yours. Thank you. I sir. love your website. So I want to do something that's comparable. Um, but you can find me, uh, Chaplain Sai Ali. I'm on YouTube. Just look for Project Resurrection the Podcast and you'll 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 get an eye and ear full. Well, I mean, Project Resurrection Resurrection. Well, you can yeah. get a sponsor. Your sponsor can be be Viagra. It can resurrect. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Listen. I, you, know <laughs> you might be joking. I might say, hey, come on now. <laughs> but listen, I want you to close with this. If there's somebody out there who's thinking about giving up, there's somebody out there who's thinking they can't go. If somebody thinking it's too heavy, it's too much, I just don't want to be here no more. Give them some words or some uh, inspiration that's going to keep them going. You've got to look to God. I mean, I know not everybody wants to do that. But there is, everybody has a purpose, Bernard, even if you don't think you do. I didn't think I did, but obviously God thought otherwise. Seek help. Do not suffer in silence. Don't do as I do. Seek help. Because that's the, you know, everybody tells me, okay, why didn't you seek help? 
I'm like, I was in such a dark place. Come on now. I didn't want anybody to know. I'm protecting people. That's right. Places. What that would be, that's career suicide for me. No pun intended. Correct. That's career suicide. But now I realize my transparency helps others feel free to talk about it. You have to talk about it. And yes. there's missions for everybody. Even if you don't think you have a mission, everybody has a mission. Correct. But you have to let people know. Do not suffer in silence like me. Be transparent and seek help, whether it's through ministry, whether it's through psychology or psychiatry, whatever it is, whatever helps you. But you have to understand your trigger points. Okay. And I said there's four. There's four fitness pillars for me. Okay. Financial, spiritual, physical, and mental. Now, financial is my Achilles heel. Okay. But the all, all the three other pillars, I think I'm crossing them off. Do I still feel a certain way? Yeah, I felt a certain way yesterday when 9-11 happened mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. because of everything that transpired with me military-wise and mm -hmm. losing my business and things like that. But be transparent, Bernard. You have to. And be able to laugh about it. Yes. See, you sparked something in me where the, I saw the laugh therapist and I was like, man, we still need to laugh. We, we still need to laugh. Happy. We still need to be thankful. Yes. Because we're, we're messing up our planet, man. We are <laughs> messing up. God, I don't think God's happy with us right now. He's remote. Yes. Man. Yes. And see, one thing you said about that with uh, with you being a security person, you felt like you didn't want to get help because it would be like a stain on your The thing is now people are more adapted to say if you tell them something is going on with you they go and you go and get help you are rewarded yes. now yes. you are looked at even cuz even if you're in the military you got a security clearance if you go and get help you're you're okay you don't are. wait until you get that DUI don't wait until you get that uh that abuse don't wait till you get that felony now your security yeah. clearance messed up Absolutely. now you can, yeah you have to do all try to do all this before that happens yes but well, well sir I yep. want to thank you for being, I'm telling you, I, you had us in, I'm going to use your wrestling. Now you had us in the headlock the whole time. You, you, you just had us in the chicken wing. You had us. In, you, <laughs> you, you, hey, it is great. I and I tell you, I, this is not the last time we're going to talk. This is not the I last not. time that we're going to be, because I'm trying to put together this, this uh, mental health conference along with a comedy show to do together and you will be a great speaker and i know you will be a great speaker sir. thank so. you i look forward to it man keep doing what you're doing brother god bless you thank you sir and right now you are released from the stigma free zone have thank a great you. day i'll see you man you take care thanks for listening to the ptsd podcast if you enjoyed this episode please hit follow or subscribe on all podcast platforms so you can stay up to date on new episodes until next time stay stigma free